0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. there, Weren't you for a moment? You're like, what in the world's going on? Where was the planning in all of that? Well, it was planned unplanning. There's nothing unspiritual about planning. If you did not have planning, there would be a lot of things that wouldn't happen this morning in our worship service if there wasn't a plan. You can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, and as you're turning there, back in the early 90s, my father planted a church in Colorado Springs. And this church plant was uh, very vibrant. It started out very healthy. Uh, they were reaching people for the Lord. They were sharing the gospel. They were evangelizing. And the, and the church grew from about a few families all the way up to over 100 people. But then something dramatically happened about five years into the church plant. The people began to take an extreme view of Planning. Basically, they had this idea. They had gone through the Experiencing God study by Henry Blackaby, which is a good study, but they had taken it to an extreme. They had taken it to the extreme to say that planning is unspiritual. You shouldn't plan for the future. And so my dad was leading them to plan and make, and make decisions about reaching the lost and doing missions. And they basically brought things to a screeching halt and told my dad, we don't plan here at this church. Planning's unspiritual. We're just going to sit and wait for God to show us what to do. So for two years, they waited and did nothing and were disobedient to the Great Commission because God, quote-unquote, had not come and showed them what they needed to do, and planning was unspiritual. I don't know if you've ever been around people that believe that planning is unspiritual, but prayer, planning, and patience can go together in the Lord. And that's this morning what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. We started Nehemiah last week, and if you remember from chapter 1, there was the overwhelming Dilemma. The overwhelming dilemma was that the wall was in ruins. It had not been rebuilt. And so Nehemiah is moved to tears. He's mourning. The fact that they had, they had lived there for 94 years and the wall was still broken down. And so what does he do? He prays and he fasts and he mourns and, and he spends time on his knees before this awesome God. And if you remember, we saw last week that God is the awe-inspiring God. He's the powerful God. And, and he prays for God to move, to, to bring revival back to the land. that he could go back and, and rebuild the wall. And so what we looked at last week, our big idea was that in times of national crisis, the extraordinary God answers the prayers of his ordinary people, that God answers prayer, that we can go to this great, awesome God and ask him for things, and God answers prayer. And so what I want you to do is go back to Nehemiah chapter 1 and look at that last verse, Nehemiah 1.11, because we find that this ordinary man, this ordinary man, Nehemiah, prays something very specific to the Lord. He says in Nehemiah 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, Nehemiah had to go in and get permission from King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. And what does he pray there? Lord, give me success when? Today. Give it to me. Today, Now, does Nehemiah just get right up off his knees and go in and God just answers his prayer automatically? Does it happen today? As we will see, it takes four months for God to answer his prayer. So here's the big idea for this morning. The gracious hand of this extraordinary God grants his ordinary people success in planning great things for God. William Carey was a missionary to India, the father of modern missions in the early 1800s. And he had this statement that stuck with me. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Are you willing to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God? That was Nehemiah's battle cry. So let's look at this unfold, this whole idea that God's gracious hand helps those of us who are his ordinary people plan great things for his glory. Nehemiah chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 through 5 to begin with this morning. In the month of Nisan, it's not the car Nisan, it's Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now remember, Nehemiah is an ordinary guy, he's not a prophet. He's not a priest, he's not a king, he's an ordinary guy. But he's a guy with a holy ambition. He wants to go back and rebuild this wall. He's got the passion to do it. And so Nehemiah is kind of this type A leader that wants things done yesterday. He's antsy, he's anxious, he wants to go back and build the wall. He's a man of action, he's a strategic thinker. Now, some of you are type A people here, aren't you? and you're anxious. You want things done yesterday. And some of you, while the praise team was playing and you saw me talking to Marcy, you got really nervous. You were like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? Your type A personality came out and you got a little antsy. Others of you are not type A and you're like, okay, let's go with the flow. If this is what's going to happen this morning, that's cool. I'm going to go with the flow. Nehemiah is not a type A person. I mean, Nehemiah is not a type B person. He's a type A person. And so one of the things that we see here is that Nehemiah had to undergo, the first thing we see is a pre-planning process. There's some pre-planning that God had to do in his heart and he had to do before the rebuilding of the wall. And the first thing that he had to do was he had to wait. Now this may not mean much to you, but in the month of Nisan, that's four months after he had prayed. Four months go by. And what does Nehemiah do during those four months? He prays. He fasts, he mourns, he seeks the face of the Lord. And now in chapter 2, there's a festival. There's some type of of, of party. We're really not sure what it is. It could have been the king's birthday. And maybe the king would be in good spirits. It's the opportune time. After four months of waiting and praying, maybe the king would say yes. Because back in Ezra chapter 4, this same king put a halt to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the king notices something about Nehemiah. After four months of of weeping and mourning and fasting, it's starting to show on his face. And the king's like, this is a happy occasion. Everybody's supposed to be happy here. This is is a fun party, Nehemiah. What's the deal? You look sad. What's going on? And so he has to be patient. The first thing we see in this pre-planning phase is patience. When God wants to do something extraordinary, either in you and an individual, Or in a church he oftentimes makes us wait now sometimes we can just march right out and begin doing things but I have found in my own personal experience that if it's of God if it's truly of God one of the things that he will often do is make us wait patiently upon him prayer fasting seeking the face of the Lord and that's what Nehemiah has to do he has to wait he has to wait upon the Lord and he's afraid Because the king notices, the king reads between the lines and says, Nehemiah, what's what's the deal? Why are you so upset? And Nehemiah says, I was much afraid. And and the king says, what are you asking, Nehemiah? And then I love verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love this. Because this is not Nehemiah doing a quiet time. This is a quick shoot-up prayer to God in a moment of crisis. It's this quick prayer under his breath. God, give me help right now. Now, now there was four months of planning, four months of praying, and now he's come to that moment of truth where he actually has to ask for the request. You need both types of praying. You need that agonizing, long, patient, seeking the face of the Lord, praying and fasting. But then there's some of those opportunities where you just got to pray on the moment. You got to pray on the fly. How many of you guys have had those pray on the fly type moments? God, God help me in this moment now. That's where Nehemiah was. It's like, I'm shooting this prayer up to you, to you, God, right now. I need help. When I was in college, I worked at Kenny Shoes. Maybe some of you remember Kenny Shoes. It's a, it was in the mall. I was in Chapel Hill's Mall in Colorado Springs. I was a shoe salesman. And my manager was a jerk. I'll just mention it out, outright. He was verbally abusive, and he was kind of scary and kind of intimidating. And, and I was a young 19-year-old you know, college student. And it came time for the summer to come about, and I had had an opportunity to go on a mission trip with my college ministry to the French island of, Cari- uh, of, of Martinique in the Caribbean. And so I was really nervous about going and asking my boss for time off because I wasn't sure how he was going to respond. So I'd spent days praying about how was I going to approach him and I prayed, and I prayed, and I remember walking into the hallway of Chapel Hill's Mall, and I'm praying under my breath, help me God, help me God, help me God. And then I turn the corner, and there's the food court, help me God, help me God. And then I get closer to Kenny's shoes, and I'm like, help me God, help me God. And then I walk in there, and it's the moment of truth, and under my breath, I'm like, help me God. It's like that quick prayer, and then I, the words come out, can I have 10 days off to go on a mission trip? And I thought he was going to, like, slam me, but his whole demeanor changed. He got all happy all of a sudden and said, sure, take as much time as you want. Sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Sounds like you're going to do some great things for the Lord. I'm like, holy cow, God answered that prayer in that moment because I would never have heard that guy say that. So patience, four months of waiting, and then prayer. But then there comes the petition. There's the moment of truth. He's very specific, and when he asked the king, he's very polite, he's very cordial, he is a delicate. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor, this is verse 5, let me go back to Jerusalem and, and rebuild. Rebuild the wall. Now, this moment of truth has taken four months in the making. It wasn't like Nehemiah just said, well, I'm just going to barge in the king and trust the spirit. Yes, we need to trust the Holy Spirit. But it took four months of planning and praying and agonizing and thinking and then there comes that strategic moment of pre-planning where he comes to the king and he asks for permission but behind it all who's working his sovereign hand of grace god is doing that because if the king is going to answer the request god has to do that and we find this in proverbs 21 1 the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he will Why did the king grant Nehemiah's request? Because it was God's plan for the king to do that. So Nehemiah undergoes this pre-planning process. But the second thing we see here is the need. What does Nehemiah need in order to go back and rebuild the wall? He needs two specific things. He needs protection, and he needs provision. Protection and provision. Let's see this play out in verses 6 through 10. Protection and provision. So let's pick up in verse 10. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside me, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel." two things, protection and provision. What's the first thing Nehemiah asked for? I need official letters of transit, king. If I'm going to travel 900 miles to go back to Judah, I'm bound to be stopped by these people that hate the Jews. I'm bound to be stopped by border patrol, so I need an official document with your seal on it, king, giving me free access to go back. I need passports, king. And so the king gives him passports. The first thing he got was was basically a passport, He was a strategic planner. He was a thinker. He knew exactly what he needed. He wasn't going to take a chance. King, I need protection. But the second thing, and this is amazing, he needs provision. What does he ask the king for? King, I need to go over to Home Depot. I need to go down to Mead lumber. And by the way, I need your credit card, and I need to get all this this lumber. I know exactly how much I need. i got to take this lumber back to rebuild the wall. And what does the king do? Here's my credit card. Go talk to Asaph. He's the foreman of the Mead Lumber. He's the the manager of Home Depot. He'll give you whatever he wants. And so Nehemiah goes to the king's lumber yard and gets all of the, the necessary provision that he needs to go back and rebuild the temple. Now, how foolish would it have been, how foolish would it have looked to the king if Nehemiah walks in there and the king says, well, what do you need, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, well, I really don't know, king. I've kind of been thinking about it and I know I'm probably gonna be stopped by border patrol and I think we're gonna need some construction and some lumber, but king, I really haven't thought it out, I haven't planned it out, I really don't know. I think God's just gonna provide. Now, does God just provide sometimes? Yes. Does God come through in the clutch sometimes? Yes, but is that an excuse for not planning? Is that an excuse for presumption? No, sometimes God does that, but Nehemiah got exactly what he had asked for because he planned ahead. King, I need protection, I need papers, and I need provision, I need lumber. But I think at the end of verse 8, we see the key to this whole passage of Scripture. Notice how it says at the very end of verse 8, For the good hand of my God was upon me. He's going to say that a lot throughout the book of Nehemiah. The good hand of God was upon me. God was in this. This is God's plan. This is God's vision. This is God's will. And I'm I'm seeing God's hand in it. It doesn't mean that Nehemiah doesn't plan and just says, I'm just going to trust God. No, God was in every intimate detail of the planning. God was there. It was God's plan. God's loving, gracious hand was upon him. But as we will see, just because God's hand is upon it, and just because God grants success, and just because things are going really, really good, does not mean that we will not face opposition. There comes opposition to the building of the wall. We're introduced to two new characters in the narrative. Don't ever name your kid Sanballat the Horonite, or Tobiah the Ammonite. Who are these two guys? Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, a pagan Gentile. Tobiah was probably a leader of the Ammonites, and they got really upset that the king had appointed Nehemiah to be the governor of Judah that Nehemiah had been given papers and that Nehemiah had been given lumber, they did not like the fact that somebody was going to go back to rebuild the wall. There was opposition from the very beginning. This will set up to what we're going to talk about next week. There comes opposition. Anytime, and we need to understand this very clearly, anytime God calls a church, God calls a family, God calls an individual to do something extraordinary, there will be opposition count on there being opposition to god's people because the the the, the devil's real is he not and he's going to want to thwart and try to destroy and distract and do anything he can to get god's people off task now i want to just say something real quick i prayed about this all week i'm afraid that there may be many in our congregation who are gripped by fear at this time in our nation I hear a lot of belly aching. I hear a lot of fear. I hear a lot of of just lack of hope among God's people because of what's going on in our nation, what's going on with the economy, what's going on in politics. And let me just say loud and clear, I understand that. I understand where the fear and the uncertainty and the anxiety comes from. But let me just say this, let there be hope because God is an extraordinary God and can do things in the midst of bad times. Would you agree with me on that? Please, don't give in to Fear, let us be a people who are hopeful. Of all people right now, who needs to be the most hopeful? Christians. Because the watching world's looking at us, and if they see the hope that we have, we can point them to the God of hope and show them that God is a gracious God. And so there's this attack coming upon Nehemiah, and we should expect the same type of attack coming when we attempt great things for God. What does Ephesians six eleven through 12 say? Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, people are not our enemies, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is Satan and his demons. And he will come against God's people anytime they attempt to do something for God's glory. Count on it. Bank on it. If you are trying or attempting great things for God, count on there being opposition. If there's not opposition, you need to probably question, is this of God? Because God will often ordain that we go through trials if it's truly something for his glory. Okay, so what have we seen so far in Nehemiah? We see this pre-planning phase four months of prayer, of fasting, of strategic thinking, of planning and, and he's patiently waiting and then he goes before the king. It's the moment of truth. He asks the king for, for, for the permission to go back and rebuild the wall and he needs two things. He needs protection and provision and so immediately does Nehemiah get up and, and walk out of the king's office and say, okay, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Let's, let's start this thing. No, we see thirdly strategic planning. Now, Oftentimes, people will look at the book of Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah is a great book on leadership. Any type of strategic leadership, read the book of Nehemiah. And I would agree with them. Nehemiah is an excellent book on strategic leadership. I don't think that's what the entire book is about. I think the entire book is about a broken down people that God needs to rebuild through revival. But I do believe that you can get some leadership principles from the book of Nehemiah. So let me address this. I I want us to look at some leadership principles. I think we see five leadership principles from Nehemiah. Now, now don't tune me out right now and say, well, I'm not a leader, so I don't need to listen to these. These can be helpful in any type of influence that you have. If you're a parent, if you're an employee, if you have any type of influence, or if you're in any type of leadership position, these principles from Nehemiah, I think, will help you. And I think it also helps you to understand how we as elders, and we as leaders, and we as pastors think about things strategically. So let's see the strategic plan that Nehemiah undergoes to rebuild the wall. So let's pick up in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night, walked by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles of the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What's this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Then I replied to them, "The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as a servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." What I want us to do is I want us to see five areas of leadership that emerge from this passage of scripture. And here's the first issue, in any type of leadership, in any type of strategic planning, and this is the most important. number one. The plan or the vision has to come from God. It has to be God-ordained. It's not something you just think of. It's not a whim that you have. It's something that comes from the very heart of God. Notice what Nehemiah says here in verse 12. He says in verse 12, I arose at night, a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. God had put this desire in his heart to do the rebuilding of the wall. It was a God-birth vision. It wasn't just something that Nehemiah thought about. God was in it. God gave him this heartfelt passion, this desire, this vision to do it. So it has to start with a God-ordained vision, not just a whim, not just something that you, that you think about. It has to start with God. And how does it come? How did it come with Nehemiah? Did he just wake up one day and say, I think I'll do this? Four months of agonizing prayer and fasting and seeking the face of the Lord and on his knees before God. That's how you understand God's ordained vision. It takes time to really, what is God really asking us to do? Have we spent the appropriate amount of time in prayer and fasting? And do we know that it's a God-ordained vision? Okay, here's the second issue about planning or leadership. Strategic planning requires a thorough and careful inspection and research of the entire situation. Now, what does Nehemiah do? When he gets to Jerusalem, it's interesting, what does he do? He waits three days before he does anything. Now, we're not sure what he does in those three days. Was he praying? Was he fasting? Was he, was he thinking? Was he resting? But then he waits three days and he gets probably on a donkey as to not draw attention to himself, takes a few guys with him, and at night goes and does what? A thorough inspection of every part of the wall. He walks around, he looks, he inspects, he researches. he gathers the information. He does a thorough inspection of what's going to happen. He needs to know exactly how much this thing is going to cost. Not just in lumber, but in people and energy and time. Good leaders think about this. If we're going to attempt something great for God, what's the cost? What's the cost in resources? What's the cost in personnel? What's the cost in time and energy? What is the ultimate cost? Is it worth it? If we're going to do something great for God, we need to research, we need to inspect, we need to look at all of the angles and then say, what is this going going to cost us? And he's very key during this time. He doesn't let anybody know. He keeps it under his vest. He, he doesn't just let it out there. There's a strategic reason he does this. Number one, he wants to get all his ducks in a row before he goes out half-cocked and gives a plan. But number two, there could be spies in Jerusalem for Samballa and Tobiah, and if he would have announced it right away, the, the whole process could have come to a screeching, screeching halt because of these spies. So he's strategically thinking, I've got to get all the facts I need to look at the whole situation, I want to have all my ducks in a row, and then when I've done a thorough analysis of the situation, I'm going to go present it to the key people. And that's what Nehemiah does. Here's the third thing he does. In order to attempt something great for God's glory, there needs to be ownership. It's got to move from being Nehemiah's vision to the group's vision. So what does he do? Notice what happens in verse 17. After he inspects the wall, after he does it at night, he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. Verse 17, then I said to them, he gathers the nobles, he gathers the leaders, he gathers the key leadership, he gathers everyone together and he says, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Notice what he's doing. He's using the we language. We're in trouble here we've got a problem. We are are suffering major trouble. We've got to arise and build. Now, part of a leadership issue is you've got to be very realistic in painting a picture of reality. That's what leaders do. Leaders come in and say, Houston, we have a problem. Because what's the tendency of people to be complacent? most leaders are out ahead thinking strategically and they come in and they give a healthy dose of reality to the people and say listen we are in trouble and the word he uses there for trouble is a strong word in the hebrew language this is wickedness this is unacceptable for 94 years this wall is laid in ruins and it wasn't as if they hadn't known that i mean you could walk out in jerusalem for 94 years and say hey that wall's not rebuilt so it wasn't like they didn't know the issue But why in the world did nobody stand up and say, we need to do something about that? That's what a leader does. A leader comes in and says, let's face reality here. Houston, we have a problem. There's a major issue. We cannot be complacent. We cannot just sit back idly. We've got to do something, and we're in this together. Let us rise and build. Sometimes we need a leader to come kick us in the pants to get us out of complacency. And notice what Nehemiah does. He calls for decisive action. He says, let us arise and build. I mean, think of all the time that is spent getting to that point. Four months of praying, four months of planning. Then he goes before the king and says, King, I need provision, I need protection. He goes to Jerusalem. He spends three days thinking about it again. He goes and he inspects the wall. He gets a thorough analysis of everything. He gathers the people together and he says, Here's the problem. But then here comes that moment where he says, Okay, this has got to be done. I'm calling us to decisive action. We've got to rebuild the wall. It's no longer Nehemiah's issue, it's a corporate issue. Nehemiah says, I've seen it. I know the problem, but I cannot do this myself. I need all of us on board to do this. So we need to all arise and build the wall. But here's the fourth thing that he does. Yes, he calls for action, and yes, he calls for ownership, but he inspires them with confidence. He encourages them. He gives them the confidence to say, we can do this. Notice what he says. He doesn't just say, let's arise and build. Things are really terrible. He inspires confidence. He he gets them excited about it. Notice what he does. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And I said, let us rise and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. What does Nehemiah do? Listen, God's in this. This is God's vision. The good hand of God has been upon me. I've prayed. I've fasted. I've seeked the face of God. This is God's plan for our life. This is God's plan for our church. This is God's plan for our nation. Do you see the good hand of God upon us? And notice what they do. They get excited. They rise up. They said, let us rise up and build. They're excited. Let's do this. We're on board, Nehemiah. And it said they strengthened their hands for the good work. They were on board. It had shifted from being Nehemiah's vision to the entire nation's vision where they all said together, we're behind you, Nehemiah. Let's do this. Let's do it now. We've got the passion. We've seen the need. We've got to do this for the glory of God. We understand it's a God-ordained vision. We are behind you, Nehemiah. Let's do it. But here's the fifth thing that happens, and this sets us up for next week a little bit. Leaders help their people prepare for opposition and conflict. What had Nehemiah just done? He'd shown them the need. He'd inspired confidence. Everybody's on board. Everybody's excited. Let's all do this together. And just at that moment, the balloon pops, because who comes now? Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, And look at what happens. A third guy joins their ranks, Geshem the Arab. Isn't it interesting that before there were two and now it's grown to three? How quickly does opposition grow? How quickly does it become where a few people over here are a little critical, a few people over here are against, and then it keeps growing and growing. Do you realize that negativity grows like cancer? Have you ever been around a negative person? It's a whole lot easier to give in to negativity than to be the one to stand up against it. It's grown, and that's not what Nehemiah needs at this moment. He does not need more people coming against him. And so, what I'd say to you this morning is, don't give into negativity, whatever it is, Wh- wherever you are. If there's negativity around you, be the lone voice that stands up and says, "I'm not going to give into this negativity. I'm not going to let it spread like gangrene. I'm going to I want to talk about the glory of God and the, and the vision that God has. I'm going to be a person of hope. I'm not going to be a person that's a downer. And they know they legally can't stop Nehemiah. He's been appointed governor by king artaxerxes he's been given the official paper so what do they do they try to demotivate through their speech they jeer which means to profanely mock they try to put doubts in the people's mind hey what are you guys doing you're rebelling against the king now remember, back in Ezra 4.12, ki- this same king put a halt to it. You better watch out. This is going to come back and bite you. This is not of God. Don't listen to Nehemiah. You're, you're rebelling against the king. Don't move forward with this. So they do two things. They, they poison the minds of the people to say, we can't trust Nehemiah as our leader, and we're not sure if God's really behind this. And that's devastating to any leader. If people don't trust you and they don't believe it's of God, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to mock them. Jesus himself was mocked in this same way. In Luke 22, 63 through 65, Jesus himself experienced the mocking. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Do you realize what the most powerful weapon is out there? It's not an atomic bomb, it's the tongue it's a powerful weapon it can demotivate it can deflate and at times the tongue can destroy what does james say about the tongue james 3 6 through 8 and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison sticks and stones may break my bones but what words may never hurt me there's a Greek word for that it's called baloney words hurt and I love what Nehemiah does Nehemiah is not a wimp he doesn't say, I'm just gonna let this go by. What notice what he does there in verse twenty. I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Notice what he says. This is God's plan. This is God's will. God is on our side. This is God's business and we are his servants. Remember last week we talked about that servant terminology? We are God's servants. This is of God's plan. But you, Tobiah, you, Sanballat, you, Geshem, you have no part in this, so back off, buddy. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He said, you have no part in this. You are Gentile pagans. This is God's work. Stay away from my people. If you come close, we're going to have words. And later on in Nehemiah, you find out he does more than just have words. He lays hands on people. And I'm not talking about what we did earlier, laying hands. More like fisticuffs. Nehemiah was a man of action. And he had to prepare his people. If we're going to do this, we've got to expect the opposition. We've got to stand up and say, do not come close. This is of God and we are his people and God will give us success now we've read the narrative here of Nehemiah and you may be thinking well this is all fine and cool Sean it's a cool story about a guy that led people to rebuild a wall but what does it have to do with us we're not rebuilding a wall are we last time I checked nobody's out there with bricks and mortar building a wall around Emmanuel Baptist Church we're really not building anything but let me ask you a question as a church And I asked it last week, and I'll ask it loud and clear again this week. What are we asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he receives all the glory? Are you praying for revival? I mean, seriously, praying for revival. Are you praying for the future of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Are you on your knees like Nehemiah saying, God, you must do something great. We want your extraordinary hand of grace to be upon our ministry. Uh, we we want to be ready for the opposition when it comes. What, what, what is the future of Emanuel Baptist Church? What are we praying for? Are we praying for a deeper level of commitment? Are we content with business as usual? I'm afraid far too often the biggest killer in most churches is complacency well, this is kind of what we're doing, and this is what works for me, and don't ask me to commit, and don't ask me to, to do anything above and beyond what I'm doing, and I'm just going to sit here and, yeah, that things are cool, that sounds real neat, Jesus, let's just kind of keep things, does that sound exciting to you? No, I hope not. I hope you understand the trajectory I've been taking us on as a church over the past few months. It started back in September with our 50-day spiritual journey. We as a whole church family spent 50 days in the Word of God, understanding what it meant to go deeper with Christ. That was a very personal time of reflection, of understanding your identity in Jesus. Then we shifted gears and went to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes helped us understand, okay, how do I actually live this out in radical ways that are different from the world around us? How do I live as a citizen of the kingdom? Again, that was very personal, looking at me individually. The 50 days, me individually. Beatitudes, me individually. Now we're moving into Nehemiah. Nehemiah is more than just me individually. Nehemiah is how do we as a group, how do we as a family, how do we as a body move forward to do what God has called us to do? And I have to stand before you as your pastor and say, I really don't know what that is. Please forgive me, I don't know what that is. I don't know what God's big thing is for us for the future, but I want us to all be on board to seek that. And so here I'm asking this for you. I'm asking this of you. Do you pray for God's extraordinary hand of grace to be upon this church? What what did Nehemiah pray? For the hand of God was upon me. The good hand of God was upon me. Let me just be real honest with you. I, as your pastor, need you to pray that prayer for me. I cannot pastor this church in my flesh. I cannot pastor this church in my cleverness or in my ingenuity. I have got to have you praying that the good hand of God would be upon my life so that I would be like Nehemiah to be able to see what our future is. So I'm asking you to pray that specific prayer. Father, would you have the good hand of grace upon Pastor Sean so he can see? The same thing for our elders. Lord God, would you have the good hand of grace come upon our elders so that these men called out by God can help Pastor Sean to see what our vision is as a future. Are you praying for the good hand of God to come upon our leadership? Are you praying for the good hand of God to come upon Andrew and Julie? Andrew is our youth pastor. And Andrew is excited for Christ and and has a vision and plan for our youth ministry. Are you praying for Andrew and are you praying for the youth leadership and are you praying for those involved in the student ministry to say, God, would the good hand of grace be upon Andrew and Julie as they lead? Are you praying for marcy she can't hear me but she's outside the door are you she's smiling at me now because she sees me is the good hand of grace upon marcy our children's director our children's ministry those that work in children's ministry are we praying as a church lord would you put your good hand of grace upon marcy to give her The leadership to know how to lead. Are you praying for our praise team that the good hand of the Lord would be upon Doug and our instrumentalists and and our musicians and our singers, that the good hand of grace would be upon our praise team? Are you praying that the good hand of grace would be upon our women's ministry? And that the good hand of grace would be upon our men's ministry. And the good hand of grace would be upon our our prison and jail ministry. And you heard this morning about our Hispanic ministry. Would the good hand of grace be upon Reyes and his ministry? Would the good hand of grace be upon our partnership with Russia and our partnership with India and any possible church plants that we might do and any type of evangelistic outreaches that we do? Are we praying as a church that the good hand of God's grace would be upon us? Yes, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm asking you to do as a church is this. I'm asking you to dream big. I'm afraid we've lost, and maybe it's my fault as your pastor, maybe we've lost that desire to dream big. And maybe we've thought in our mind, economy's bad, politics are bad, everything's bad, we're in this town that's way out in the middle of nowhere. We're just ordinary people. Things are bad. And God can't do anything with us because we're just, it's just hopeless. And we kind of get into this mentality that, man, God, God's just kind of, mean, there's nothing big left to do. We're just going to kind of come to church. We're going to coast, and we're going to hope Jesus comes back soon. Yes, I hope Jesus comes back soon. But I pray as your pastor, and I pray that you as the people of this congregation would say, let us arise and not build, but let us arise and dream big. What what dream is God putting in your heart? Do you have a dream? Has somebody taken your dream? What is that dream? Let me share with you a passage of scripture. Let this be the scripture that rings through our ears as we think about what God's future is for us. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 through 21. Now to him, speaking of the Father, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask, or think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen the greatest dream you can dream god can dream it bigger It says he's far more able to do all that we can ask or think according to his power within us. We've got the power of God. We've got the hand of God. We've got the sovereign grace of our God. Why would we settle for anything less than just mediocrity? And we've got a sovereign, powerful, gracious God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. My prayer as your pastor is that you as a congregation would dream big. That we would Dream big. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you just to spend a few moments in the quietness of this moment. Dreaming big through your praying. Maybe you just need to, and I hope you don't take this as a selfish thing, but maybe you just need to pray for me and the elders. Maybe God's leading you to pray for for me or pray for Andrew or pray for Marcy or pray for our our women's ministry or pray for for one of the ministries in our church and and your prayer in this moment would be, God, would your good hand of grace be upon us and, and help us to dream big for our future? So wherever God may be leading you to pray or maybe it's in your own family or something that you're facing in your ministry area, just spend some time asking God to show you his big plan for your life and for our church. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Forgive me for at times giving in to a spirit of hopelessness, this attitude that you can't use us as a church or that we're too far off, we're not the front range, or Lord, we don't have all the resources or we may not have all the talent or we may not have this or that. Lord, we, we so often look at what we don't have that we fail to see what we do have. And that is a God who can do measurably more than we can ask or think according to your power that's at work within us. May we trust in your power, God. Would you open our eyes to what you want this church to become? Would you shake us out of complacency? Would you move in our hearts to bring about revival in our own hearts, Lord? Lord, It's one thing for us to pray for revival out there, but Lord, I just want it to come to me. And you'll take care of the rest, but let it come to me first. Let us be a people that say, let us rise and build for the good hand of God's upon us. Whatever that may be that you call us to do, God, we're ready to do it. We want to seek your face and we want to know what your plan is and we want to know what your provision is. So Lord, help us to be like Nehemiah that we plan and think and pray and strategize and and are on our knees and fasting and and mourning and and spending that appropriate time that we need just to find out what your vision is. There's no short-circuiting this process, Lord. I know that. Father, thank you that your hand of grace has been upon this church. I thank you for the love that you show us Lord, I thank you for every single person that's here this morning, and Lord, their life, what that life means. A life that can be used for great things for your glory. A life that you've redeemed out of slavery and brought into salvation. And Lord, if there's anybody here that's not been saved, if there's anybody under the sound of my voice that's never trusted Christ alone for salvation, would today be their day of salvation. Would they see that the the big dream in their life is just to, to have a relationship with Christ and that you can do it and you can change them from the inside out and forgive their sins and give them hope for a future and give them the assurance of eternal life? Lord, help them to see that today. Lord, if there's anybody in this place that's plagued by hopelessness, would you infuse them with hope? Lord, we wanna be a hopeful people because you are a God of hope, you're a God of grace, you're a God of power doesn't mean we won't face opposition, God, because we know it came to Nehemiah and we know it'll come to us, but we know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We have a powerful Savior. May you receive all the glory than everything that's done in our lives, Jesus. May we as a church dream big for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.